0: Today's scripture is from John 9, verses 23 to 27. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled that said, they divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. So this is what the soldiers did. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple who he loved standing nearby he said to her woman here is your son and and to the disciple here is your mother from that time on this disciple took her into his home
1: good morning everyone It's good to be together. Have you ever thought about what your last words would be? No? Okay. I'd like to say I've been planning it, but just a minute. I looked up a few famous last words, and I thought I'd share some of my favorites uh, with you. During the American Civil War, a Union Army officer named John Sedgwick thought that he was too far from the battlefield to be shot, and he died saying, they couldn't hit an elephant from this (laughs) distance, and he died while he was saying that. Elvis Presley, who died from a heart attack, which was likely a result of his addiction to barbiturates, he died while sitting on the toilet. And his last words were, I'm going to the bathroom to read. So, just for those of you who take your phones into the bathroom with you to, to read, you know, it's a little warning for you. Now, this is one of my favorites. Well, being burnt, he, so this is Lawrence of Rome, was a guy who was being burned from his first faith back in the first centuries, when Christians um, uh, were being burned. And... Uh, he famously said, while he was being burned to death, he said, turn me over, I'm done on this side. <laughs> Can you believe that? For, and then he, he is now the patron saint of humor, and I think of like roast meat, but that's maybe a little. But imagine having that sense of humor while people are killing you for your faith. He's, he's cracking jokes, it's, that's crazy. Uh, author Conan Doyle This is more beautiful than funny. Right before dying, he turned to his wife and he said, You are beautiful. Those are his last words. You are beautiful. Similarly, Australian composer Percy Granger turned to his wife and his last words were, You're the only one I like. (laughs) Imagine being his friends or his children. And then abolitionist and social activist Harriet Tubman With her family gathered around her, they were singing hymns of praise together. And her last words were, swing low, sweet chariot, coming to carry me home. Isn't that beautiful? And uh, anyway, some cool faith and some funny stuff all mixed in there. But what, what would your last words be? Or since, let's be honest, most of us won't actually know when the moment will come. We don't get to choose this. More important than your actual last words is, what do you want to leave with others before you go? I mean, there's practical things like your will and your finances and your paperwork being all in order because you want things to be as easy as possible for your loved ones. Perhaps there's some relationships that you would like to repair, some words of love or encouragement. What is really important to you that you want to be sure to arrange for or to give to others before you're gone? Now, this isn't the sermon, but I would suggest maybe start on that now instead of waiting. While hanging on the cross, knowing that Jesus, Jesus, knowing his hour had drawn near, he turns his attention to two people who he dearly loved. And as his dying wish, he offers what he wants to leave for his loved ones. In this moment, he creates a new family for his beloved mother and his beloved disciple. Woman, here is your son, here is your mother. Let's pray as we uh, come to contemplate this moment together. Holy Spirit, um, I ask that you would give us the eyes to see and the ears to hear what you have uh, for us today. Uh, knowing that it is not, that not me uh, that will speak deep truth, Lord, but that it is your spirit within us. Amen. Now, for the last few weeks, we've been spending time reflecting on the last words that Jesus spoke while he was on the cross. For those of you who are unfamiliar, there are four books in our Bibles that tell the story of Jesus' life. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They're the ones, they tell us the story of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and we call these books Gospels. So if you've been with us, a bit of a theme you may have picked up on is that each of the four Gospels, they tell us only some of what Jesus said on the cross. They are all slightly different. And this isn't because they're wrong or they remembered incorrectly. It's because each Gospel is written by different people at different times to different audiences, often with different emphasis. So what they choose to include is naturally slightly different than the others. I mean, there's a lot more going on too. If you want to read like thousands and thousands of pages of literature on why they're different, I can connect you with some resources. But this is one of the things that's going on. So what this means is that whenever we're reading the Bible, especially when we have different versions of the same story, the question we want to ask ourselves is, why did this author include this? Why is it different? Why is it in here? Because there is a reason behind the, the author has a reason for it. The author of the Gospel of John tells us the main reason for writing the Gospel of John. He tells us this in John 20, verses 30 to 31. He writes, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. Interesting that the word "believe" here can either be "you will" that you will come to believe, or that you will continue to believe. And so, in English translations, we'll see different versions, and that's why so the word could go either way. The signs that's mentioned when it says Jesus performed many other signs are actually an important part of the Gospel of John. Because in in the gospel, the author tells us about these seven signs. They are seven miracles that Jesus performs. And these signs are meant to show us that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. That Jesus is the anointed king who is the son of God who has power over creation. And this is shown to us so that we may believe, as it says here in John 20. And the first of these seven signs, the first miracle that Jesus performs in this gospel, takes place at a wedding that Jesus and his disciples were at. And this is the famous story of when uh, a wedding ran out of wine and Jesus turns the water into wine. And it's not just a little wine. He turns six large stone water jars into wine. Like that's a lot of wine. And it's not just any like cheap tasting wine. He didn't get the six dollar bottle like most of us do. This is like the choice wine. This is like Go on that vintage rack and you look at that, if you're a wine drinker, you know, that bottle that you've, you're wishing that one day you could try, but it's like a thousand bucks. You're never going to buy it. That's like the quality of wine that Jesus is making. I think there's an argument for that Jesus likes to party and celebrate in here, but that's also not what we're talking about today. (laughs) Why this sign is significant is, well, there's lots of reasons, but one is because it's the first one he does, but it's also significant because Jesus' mother is there. And in fact, in, in this gospel, Jesus' mother is only mentioned twice. Here at the wedding, uh, at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry in chapter 2, and then at the very end of his life, on the cross in chapter 19 that we heard read for us. These are the, this is where Mary appears. She is like bookends of Jesus' ministry from the start and the finish in the gospel of John. And then the story of the wedding starts like this. On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana in Galilee. So this is, Jesus is from Galilee. So essentially, it's starting from home. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. And Jesus replies, woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, "My hour has not yet come." And his mother turns to the servants and says, "Do whatever he tells you." Now notice here both here uh, here and at the cross both times Jesus igno- addresses his mother as woman. Now in English, using a word like this can actually seem derogatory, which if you think about it is not only ridiculous, it's actually offensive, right? That we use someone's gender as a derogatory way of addressing them. So it's kind of offensive that we even think of it when someone's saying, hey, woman, that that's a derogatory thing is just... Anyway, I find it ridiculous and offensive that we use it that way. But nonetheless, here in John, the word is not derogatory or disrespectful. It is simply a way of addressing her. And one thing that I find interesting is that when Jesus' mother insinuates... (laughs) that he should do something about the wine, Jesus says, my hour has not yet come. Right? It sounds like Jesus is saying, I'm not going to do it. Like, stop. Hey, mom, shut up. It's not time yet. Right? But then he does does it anyway. And the thing I, I think is funny is the next time that he says the similar thing, he's in a conversation with his brothers. And in case you didn't know this, yes, Jesus had brothers. Now, some traditions believe that Mary remained a virgin her entire life, um, but I think that there is lots of evidence uh, that in the Gospels that Mary had other children after Jesus, and that Jesus actually had biological brothers. And here Jesus is talking to his biological brothers. In John, sorry, in John seven, he's talking to his brothers, and they're telling him, "Hey Jesus, you should go with us to this religious festival, and do something like really miraculous there. Do one of these signs." And the reason they actually say is they're making fun of Jesus. The scriptures tell us they didn't believe in him. So they're kind of trying to egg him on to go do this thing. And they're kind of making fun of him. And then like he did with his mother, Jesus says, it's not my time. I'm not going to go. My time has not yet come. And then just like at the wedding, he actually goes anyway. Now, I think what is happening here is that when Jesus says his hour is not yet come, he's not actually saying that the time for him to do miracles has not yet come. I mean, obviously, otherwise he wouldn't have done them. I mean, there is an argument that he's just a mama's boy, and even though he didn't want to and it wasn't God's time, he did it even though it's because his mom said, but <laughs> I'm not sure that's the case. I think what is happening here is, is that when he says that he, his hour has come, In John 12 and 17, the hour which he has not yet come at the wedding was the hour of his being glorified. It tells us this in John 12 and John 17. The hour of God the Father being glorified. And what hour is this? Even more glorifying than seven miraculous signs is when Jesus will be lifted up on the cross. John 12 verse 32 It tells us, "When I And when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. And he said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. His being lifted up is the death he is going to die. And this is his moment of glory. The hour that had not yet come is Jesus hanging on the cross. The hour... Jesus's hour has not yet come until Jesus is hanging on the cross in front of his mother and these other women. The cross is the ultimate glorification of the son, according to John. And Jesus's hour had finally come and his mother, who had been there from the beginning, was there to witness his glory. Now, in that moment, watching her son die a horrific death, of course, it would not have felt like glory to her, but the worst thing that a mother could imagine. The loss and pain she was experiencing at that moment is only imaginable by those who endured such horrible, horrendous loss. And in that moment of death and loss, a mother in the midst of watching her son die, Jesus actually creates something new. But before we get there... We've talked about Mary. There's something else worth paying attention to that greatly shapes why the author included this moment at the cross between Jesus' mother and one of the disciples. And I think it's because this moment is very personal to the person telling the story. We know from chapter 21, 24, the author of the gospel identifies themselves as the disciple whom Jesus loved, the beloved disciple. Now, to us, it may sound, you know, a little cocky, you know, I'm the disciple that Jesus loved. I mean, that's how I would say it, probably. (laughs) I'm the disciple that Jesus loved. But it's actually a generally held opinion that the author isn't actually saying that they are more loved than others. It's not meant to be a comparative name, but more that the author recognizes how beloved they are by Jesus. So the entire Gospel of John is written as a very personal story. It is written by one who knows they are deeply loved about the one who deeply loves them. Now, we don't actually know much about how Jesus and the beloved became so close. Uh, John doesn't tell us these details. But we know there seemed to be this deepness of their friendship. In fact, there was a friendship so deep that as Jesus is dying on the cross, the last thing he does before he dies is to say to his mother, Mom, I want him to be your son from now on. And he says to the beloved disciple, I want my mom to be your mom from now on. It's no wonder John included this moment in his account of Jesus on the cross. This was a life-altering moment, not just the death of his friend and Messiah. And then coming, he obviously when this is written, it's actually having come through to also seeing his friend's resurrection to new life. But this is important to him because at the pin- pinnacle of Jesus' hour, John experienced a deep intimacy of relationship and family created at the foot of the cross as he was adopted into Jesus' family. Here at the cross, Jesus creates family not based on blood and not even on legal adoption, but based on love. New family based simply on belovedness. It is often said that the seven signs of John are to show that Jesus' work of new creation. And I think by Jesus making John and Mary family is yet another work of new creation. Perhaps not by miraculously altering substance of physical creation, like the other signs, but by giving a mother to a son and a son to a mother. Another thing that's often said about this passage is that Jesus is addressing a practical need for his mother. As in the culture at the time, a widow without a son to look after her, uh, they would be they were amongst the most marginalized people at that time. This is a patriarchal society, which means man-first society. Everything revolved around men as head is the family, and family is the center of economic and social structure, therefore the man is the center of economic and social structure. So, woman without a husband or a male child was on the bottom of a social and economic ladder. Sadly, this, I would say, the sin of patriarchy still holds sway today. Too often, and still, we see that women, that, that economic and society tends to be centered around men still. I mean, how is it possible in this age? But it still is. Um, I personally, I think, again, in light of Women's History Month, I think patriarchy is a sin. Um, it is not God's design. Um, it's beautiful the places we, as a culture and as a world, have moved forward. But we only have to, we don't even, well, I mean, look at Iran and China. You look all over the world. But we don't have to. We can look here in our own culture, and women still are not um, equal. We we say that, but then we don't pay them the same. We don't give them the same job opportunities. Uh, But anyway, this isn't what this is about either. But (laughs) but I think one of the things Jesus does is is working to break down the sin of patriarchy, and part of the way of doing that is in a patriarchal society. Women, widows, were on the bottom. And Jesus and God says, you got to care for these women. Break down the patriarchy. That isn't how it's supposed to be. That's not good. Take care of these people because I love them. And we see this all throughout Scripture. God calling us to care for widows and orphans. People without male family that can become impoverished. Psalm 68, a father to a fatherless defender of the widows is God in his holy dwelling God sets the lonely in families. And this is all throughout Scripture, and it remains an important call for us as Christ's church to care for the oppressed. However, I don't think that Jesus, I don't think that that is what Jesus is actually doing here at the cross. I don't think what is happening here is actually about economic stability, as important as that is. As we already discussed, Jesus' mother wasn't a sonless widow. She actually wasn't going to be out on the streets without Jesus. She had other sons. Other sons who normally would have taken her in and cared for her. And while the Bible is clear about social justice and caring for those on the margins, and particularly widows and orphans, that's not actually what this is about. Mary, I don't think that's what this is about. Mary didn't need that. She didn't need to become a mother of another son for her economic welfare. So it must have been something else, or at least something in addition. So while we're speaking about the final words that Jesus leaves us with, his last will and testament, so to speak, in the Gospel of John, the author, the beloved disciple, tells us that after dinner, so in those last few hours of Jesus' life, after dinner, But then before Jesus was arrested, Jesus gives this long kind of last will and testament. He gives four chapters worth. John 14 all the way through John 17 is Jesus giving to his disciples. He knows he's about to be arrested. This is his last moment to take some time with his disciples and give him his last teachings, his last prayers, his last words before being hung on the cross. Now, there are many things going on in this section, but two of them are this. One, when Jesus dies, he will not leave his disciples on their own, but he will send the Holy Spirit. Uh, In John 14, 16 to 18, he uses this family language. And I will ask the Father, he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. The Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he lives in you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. I will not leave you as orphans. The presence of the Holy Spirit with us is Jesus' presence with us in such a way that we are not orphaned. We are not without a father or mother. We are beloved children adopted by the God of love whose presence endures with us by the Holy Spirit, even when Jesus is absent or seems absent. But interestingly, that is not enough. Or at least Jesus doesn't seem to think that's enough. Because if it was enough, Jesus would have stopped there. But Jesus goes on and then goes on and over and over again in his final teaching and prayer, and I would say through all of his teachings... Jesus reminds his disciples of what it means to be disciples. John 15, 12, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Then in chapter 17, Jesus prays for all who will believe him, in him, and that includes us. And he prays that they, that we will be one. That like Jesus is in the Father, like the Son is in the Father, that they, we will be in him. And we will be in complete unity. This is how the world will know God's love that our love for and our unity with one another is so complete that they will see the glory of God in Jesus. We are not left as orphans. We have the gift of the Holy Spirit. But that isn't the only gift. No. We are we are also have the gift, and I would say not just the gift, we are commanded to live out the gift. Of family with one another. We are not orphans, not just God's Holy Spirit with us, but we are not orphans because God Jesus has given us to one another. There is something about God's people living in community, loving one another as family, even with no blood relation that speaks of belief in Jesus, like nothing else does. Jesus says, this is how people will actually know who I am. This is one of the reasons why some people speak about the kingdom of God, as opposed to the king. I shouldn't say as opposed to, because I think they run side by side. They don't replace each other, I don't think. But the kingdom of God. So if you don't know the word, in the English word kin, it means family. It means relatives. Jesus makes relatives between people who have no blood relation. And so saying "kindom of God is just another way that speaks of God's presence in the world through the family that God has created. And here at the cross with John, with the beloved disciple and with Mary, Jesus reveals his kingdom by giving a mother to a son and a son to a mother. In this moment, the kingdom of God is when at the death of a mother's child, God's spirit and God's people are there as family. I think the timing of Jesus giving Mary to John and John to Mary here is significant. I mean, Jesus knew his death was coming, so he could have done this a long time ago. And he also knew he was coming back in a couple days, right? So he didn't have to do it then. He could have waited until he resurrected and came back. And then said, "Hey, now that I'm resurrected, and really I'm doing this new creation thing, here you two, why don't you you be family together?" He could have waited, but why didn't he? I think because right at the right before he died, Jesus, knowing the pain and the grief and the horror of what his mother and his beloved friend were about to go through in his death, he gave them to one another. This creation of family. Would be the presence of love in the midst of horror. To comfort and to cry. To endure the darkness of a loved one's death together. Yes, in three days time they would also come to celebrate life and resurrection and new creation together. That is part of family as well. But the kingdom is God giving us one another now in the midst of pain and hardship and death and horror. So we are not alone, even if our blood relatives are not with us or not supporting us. That we are not meant to be alone by God's Spirit and by the presence of God's people. The kingdom of God is that Jesus places the lonely in families to find love and comfort, support, strength, encouragement and challenge In the midst of hardships. And also in the celebrations of life. And in the ordinariness of life. And to experience unconditional acceptance and love. Even when blood relations don't understand or accept you. The kingdom of God is not just to accept unconditional acceptance. But is to offer unconditional acceptance and love to others. Especially when their blood relations don't understand or accept them. Welcoming and loving them as siblings, parents, and children in the family of God. Jesus lived this out in his life and ministry just like he lived it out at the scene of his death. And then, of course, into his resurrection. In her book, Adopted, it's adopted the sacrament of belonging in a fractured world. Kelly Nicon which I'm sure is absolutely the wrong way to say her name. I'm just going to call her Kelly. She writes this. Jesus embodied this kind of family largeness. Watch him and you'll notice the company he kept. He was at ease with street kids, sick people, prostitutes, the outcasts of society. He welcomed women, foreigners, and Roman functionaries. He dined with the religious elite and partisan politicians. This is what you'd expect from someone unlimited by the boundary markers of ethnicity, class, and clan. Anyone could be as close as kin to Jesus. Jesus invites us, I would say Jesus commands us, to live a family largeness as kin. The kinship we are meant to experience and meant to offer is a, sac- is a sacrament of sorts. A visible sign of an inner grace. Where adoption into God's family, as Kelly says, a thin place where we see that we are different and yet not entirely foreign to one another. We are relatives not by blood, but by mystery. All that divides us as nations, ethnicities, and religious traditions is like vapor quickly extinguished in the light of our adoption into God's family. I mean, in a society like the one we live in that is hyper-individualistic, I mean, even in the church, we still find these sayings like, it's just me and Jesus, right? Spirit, you are all I need. When Jesus himself tells us, That as believers who have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us, it is not all we need. We need one another. We need God's gift of being welcomed into family. People who will love us and walk alongside us in faith, hope, sadness, joy, valleys and hills. And we need the gift of welcoming others. It is a gift to welcome others into our family. To love with them, to walk alongside of them in faith, hope, sadness, and joy, valleys, and hills. Doing the hard but beautiful sacrificial work of living together as kin. Kelly writes, anyone can be your family if you choose to live in fidelity with them. I mean, isn't that what marriage is? Belonging is a choice, a series of habits, a way of life that cultivates healing and what is necessary for belonging is the habit of showing up for one another. A steadfast presence that endures on good days and bad. What choices can we make to receive and offer kinship to one another as adopted children in God's family? What habits can we create that will express our fidelity for one another? That proclaim our the kinship of the kinship of God in our midst, in in our church family. Here at the cross of Christ, a place meant to be one of loneliness and death, of humility and isolation, Jesus made new creation of family and life. This is one of the gifts that Jesus gives us at the cross. So let us bravely seek out this family in our loneliness and sorrow. Let us bravely offer this kinship to one another, choosing to live in fidelity of familial love, loving one another as Jesus commanded. This is a grace and this is a challenge. Let's pray. Jesus, we can never stop talking about what happened on the cross. It is an infinity of grace and hope and love and glory of coming through death into life. And God, in that place, you remind us that we are not meant to go through our own suffering and death alone. That it is your desire and your gift to give us to one another. That by your Spirit's presence amongst us uh, and making for a unity that is only in the Spirit and the bond of peace. You give us the gift of one another. You give the gift of family even in your last dying breaths. We ask Jesus that by your Spirit, you would help us to live this out. To receive the gift, to offer the gift, and to work to make change and new habits for us as a community. That we would more and more live out that kingdom of God as we proclaim the kingdom of God in our midst. Amen.